Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I am not obviously Frank Turek. I am Jay Warner Wallace. Frank is at the crossexamine.org conference due to talk to students, to talk to churches, conferences, make a case for a well uh, kind of thought out uh, form of Christian worldview. And that's exactly what Frank is doing right now. I'm glad, though, to sit in with him. I get to partner with Frank uh, continually at crossexamine.org. As a matter of fact, I want to tell you before we begin anything else today that Frank is going to be at Calvary Tucson this weekend and then on the uh, uh, at the University of Arizona uh, next Monday night. That's October 5th. So right now as I'm speaking, he's getting ready to speak at Calvary Tucson on Sunday morning. He, he's also there tonight on Saturday night. So please try to join him if you're in that area. He's also going to be at the National Conference on Christian Apologetics. That's a, the biggest apologetics conference in the country. It's hosted by Southern Evangelical Seminary. He'll be there the following weekend, October 11th and 12th. I am typically there also. But on that particular weekend, I will be in Jackson, Tennessee. I'm sorry, that's this weekend. I'm in Jackson, Tennessee today. And next weekend, I'm going to be at the Los Angeles Unbelievable Conference. That is also happens to be on Friday and Saturday, October 11th and 12th. So please forgive me as I'm uh, at that conference. I'll see all of you at uh, the National Conference of Christian Apologetics next year. Also, I'll be at another Forensic Faith Conference uh, at the Valley Bible Church in Pleasanton, California on Saturday, October 19th. Look, all of the details about Frank's calendar and my calendar are available at crossexamined.org. Just uh, click the events tab. You'll see both of our calendars are there. And please join us. I think we've pretty much got most of the country covered. Uh, now, this today, what we're going to do, in light of the fact that Frank is not available to, to, to do the regular show, you know, we talked over the week about all the email that both of us get, people asking really good questions that, that we don't often get a chance to answer by way of email. So today what we're going to try to do is answer one of those uh, questions that's come in to Frank, and I'm going to read it to you, and we're going to be focusing on the issue of social justice. Let me read for you first the question as it came in, and then we'll try to dig through it. The writer says, my father attends a mainline denomination church whose mission statement says that as a church, they are, quote, responding to Christ's call to serve through ministries of compassion and social justice, unquote. That Jesus was compassionate, I get. His compassion is self-evident in scripture, but quote, unquote, social justice, I'm not sure I see Jesus as a seeker of social justice or that we are called to social justice, whatever that even means. Is social justice even remotely achievable? Well, that is the question that was emailed in. And I want to take a stab at answering it. And I, I think that the biggest uh, part of answering this, the, the biggest challenge in answering this, of course, lies in definitions. You know, what do we mean by this expression, social justice? The definition actually matters. You realize, of course, that we are uh, in a culture right now that is polarized largely not just by the political discourse, but by the technological advances of social media. 
you know, if you remember, it wasn't that long ago, as I was a kid growing up in, in, in America, if you wanted to dialogue with other people on an issue that was in the news, about the only way you could do it would be to write a letter to the editor. And it would come from your home address with your name on it. There was no way really to hide. You could write someone in a, uh, send in a letter anonymously. But just the, 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 the time frame in terms of getting the letter to the paper, having somebody there maybe post it on their paper, maybe not even answering it at all. Whereas now, of course, given social media, we can respond instantly in real time to whatever issue happens to be in the news. And we can do it largely with anonymity. You see this. Uh, this is why I think, it's, you know, for a fact, it's a lot easier to push back and make a claim or make a statement that could be harsh or unharsh when you have anonymity, when you, nobody knows who you are, when you're not in the actual physical proximity to the person whom you're talking to. This is why I think much of social media, especially Twitter, has just really become a hammer looking for a nail. And that's what we're constantly doing with one another. We are more and more polarized. What it means is the discourse on any issue, whether it's social justice or any other issue, issue uh, is, seems to lack a reasonable middle. Instead, what we have are extremely polarized edges that are looking for ways to punch the other in the nose. And I think sometimes when I hear this expression, social justice, what we seem to see is um, uh, a political uh, 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 understanding of social justice. Right away, when you use the term, it seems to imply some political position you are on. Uh, the, the term has become synonymous with uh, one party or the other, as you know. As a matter of fact, recently I had somebody, um, I posted a story on my social media from a, a conservative uh, Christian source, but that source used the expression social justice in the title of the, of the article. And, and right away, uh, people said, well, I, I'm not going to listen to that nonsense. This, this guy's clearly they, – they decide, they decide, made a decision about what uh, political stance he takes, whether he's liberal or conservative. They made this decision based purely on this term we call social justice. So I'm going to talk to you today about social justice. I'm going to give you some new ways of thinking about it. I'm going to give you a definition that I think will help you. And I'm going to come at it from three perspectives. Number one, of course, I'm going to come at it as an apologist, a Christian apologist, right? We are people who, uh, both Frank and I, do our best to, to read everything that we find in our sphere that is important to make a case for the Christian worldview, and then to find a way to contextualize that, to throw the ball in a way that people can catch it. And that's what I want to do here, number one. Number two, I'm going to come at it from a pastor, because a lot of what I think about when I think about the term social justice comes from my experience leading churches, leading youth groups as a youth pastor. And third, I'm going to come at it from the perspective of a police officer, because a lot of what we talk about when it comes to justice can be interpreted through the lens of law enforcement. So these are the three lenses that I, of course, look at these issues. And as, for, as a youth pastor, I will tell you, and I talk about this in a book called So the Next Generation Will Know, I broke my training up into three categories for young people. I call it TAB training, T-A-B, theology, apologetics, and B is behavior. And it's very hard to talk about the behavior that Christians ought to adopt without at least addressing, addressing issues related to social justice. But before we even start that conversation, let me ask you this question. Before we begin, is there really an objective truth about social justice? What I mean is, there, is are there certain uh, moral behaviors that we think are objectively just? Because if that's the case, we'd at least have to uh, address the issue of 
where does objective moral truth, where do objective moral claims related to social justice come from? I'm really, look, in the end, you know, and, and Frank and I have talked about this, that the best and most reasonable way to ground objective moral truth is in the mind of an object, objective moral truth giver. If what we're really saying is that uh, a certain behaviors that constitute proper more, uh, social justice are simply a matter of personal opinion, or even if they are simply a matter of cultural consensus, well, then what are we really talking about this for? Because other groups then across the globe can behave any way they want in terms of social justice, or I even here in this group can behave any way I want in terms of social justice and simply say to you, well, in my mind, personally, this is what I believe is uh, good behavior and, and, and are good principles related to social justice. And if that's just grounded in the heart of persons or in groups of persons, that means it's entirely subjective. You and I believe there actually are proper ways to think about this term that are objectively grounded. No matter whether we agree or not, there are, are standards that transcend all of us. But that would require a theistic worldview. I'm actually not inclined to talk much about this issue with people who uh, deny the objective source of uh, moral truth, including any truth about social justice. Because if we're doing that, we're simply exchanging personal opinions. That's kind of a waste of time. It seems to me that even to have this discussion on this show today, we have to first acknowledge that there is a source of objective moral truth. That's where we begin. And we come back from the break, we'll be talking about definitions that are both biblical and non-biblical for the term social justice. Stay right with me right here on our radio show. Ladies and gentlemen, can you help me with something? Can you help me get this podcast before more people? Not only tell your friends about it, but go up to iTunes and put a five-star review on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. If you do that, it will help us move the podcast up the charts so more people will hear it. Thank you so much for partnering with me on this. back at the Cross-Examine Radio Show, also known as I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And I want to talk to you now about some definitions of social justice that'll help us to even discern if social justice is a biblical concept. Now, you know, if you do some searches online, you're going to find a number of different definitions, all of which are kind of helpful. I'm going to just read a couple for you. This is from lexico.com. Uh, social justice is justice in terms of the distribution of wealth opportunities and privileges within a society. And by the way, as I read these definitions to you, you know that if you have Gen Z believers, if you have uh, young people in your family, uh, high schoolers, junior hires, they are engaging the definitions that are offered to them in universities probably more. And if we don't offer a definition of social justice, this is the definition they're going to embrace, the kinds that I'm offering to you now. Uh, here is one from investopedia.com. Social justice is a political and philosophical concept which holds that all people should have equal access to wealth, health, well-being, justice, and opportunity. Right, I keep a couple of these, these definitions in mind because some of the same words will reappear. Let me give you one more 
from the source of all truth, Wikipedia, right? I mean, I think that a lot of our young people think that's the case, but I'm going to give it to you from the very first paragraph on the Wikipedia page. Social justice is a concept of fair and just relations between the individual and society. This is measured by the explicit and tacit terms for the distribution of wealth, opportunities for personal activity, and social privileges. In Western as well as in older Asian cultures, the concept of social justice has often referred to the process of ensuring that individuals fulfill their society, their social roles, rather, and receive what was their due from society. All right. There's a lot to be unpacked there. But just before I do any of that, can I just make a, a, a kind of an obvious observation that even as I offer these definitions, are they not vague? vague enough for me to be able to kind of steer in almost any direction to accomplish these relatively vague terms? What is fair and just in terms of relations between the individual and society? Even if we're measuring this by somehow the distribution of wealth and opportunities, what do we even mean by that? So there is obviously some uh, some some confusion. I think even in the basic definition, it's not specific enough, of course, for any of us to kind of draw a conclusion one way or the other. But just let me say something about this. Uh, there is definitely a strain, um, um, a, a thread of history, Christian history, that does address the issue of social justice. As a matter of fact, no matter who you look at, some hat tip, you know, some credit will be given to uh, Christians of history like Augustine or, or uh, other thinkers who have uh, used the term or have at least kind of developed the term. Even a Jesuit priest that was uh, named Taparelli uh, is typically given the credit, right, for coining this term, even if that's true or not, this under some, some debate. But my point is, it's not as though Christian history has not had input on this notion is made, in fact, you could argue, is at the foundation of this notion. Well, why? Well, because there's a, a, another term related to justice that I think in some ways has been modified into this term called social justice. And that is the definition of what I will just call for the sake of the discussion, biblical justice. Now, there, there's a, this notion is very similar, but there are some distinctions. So when I answered this question to a, a writer who writes in and says, hey, what am I to make of my father's church that says it is called to serve through ministries of compassion and social justice? Well, the question I'm going to have is, what do you mean by social justice? Do you mean the term that is typically embraced by secular culture? Or do you mean the term that is typically grounded in a notion of biblical justice that comes out of both the Old and New Testament? Because there is a view of biblical justice that I think all of us would agree we are to embrace. Look, the Bible teaches that our God, Yahweh, is a God of justice, right? All his ways are justice, according to Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. You see this over and over again. The Bible talks about caring for the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner people who are not able to fend for themselves or that have no support system. I mean, duh, we get this, right? If we are biblical Christians, we know we see this on the pages of both the Old and New Testament. The nation of Israel was consistently commanded by God to care for the less fortunate. You see it in Isaiah 1. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. You see this in Proverbs 31, verse 9. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. 
You see it in the New Testament, right? Jesus tells us uh, in, in uh, several sermons, but he'll talk, in Matthew 25, he'll say the word of care for the quote-unquote least of these. Um, James talks about it. His brother talks about it as being the, the truest uh, expression of quote-unquote true religion. So look, if what we mean when we are talking about social justice is just that we have a, a moral obligation to care for those who are less fortunate than we are, well, then yes, if that's what you mean by social justice, then I think we can agree that's really grounded in a notion of biblical justice that's both in the Old and New Testament. Uh, there are going to be people, given our fallen world, who will end up being widows, who will end up being fatherless, who will end up being in a place where they need assistance from us. And he gives us a way to care for them. And that behavior is modeled in Jesus himself. So if that's the idea, and where does that originate? Well, that's like we said, there are good reasons to, to look at the history of, of Christian thought. You will find that many advocates for this form of social justice emerge as key teachers, leaders in the Christian movement in history. Now, I will tell you that typically when I answer this question for anyone, I want to give you now what I think is the best way to think about this by just showing you the differences between social justice and biblical justice. And I think once I do that, you're going to have a better sense of what we believe as Christians, what we ought to believe as Christians. But let me just say this before I, I, I launch into those definitions and talk about those differences. And that is that when I am asked about political issues, I am typically uninterested. I don't spend a lot of time on political issues, even in my own podcast, which I have a weekly podcast, I have a weekly TV show like Frank on NRB TV. We've got hundreds, I think over a thousand articles on our website at coldcasechristianity.com. You will find that there are very little there that has any connection to it or just straight politics, right? I just, it's just not something I am interested in, in writing about. And here's why. I believe that in making a case, that making a case for the Bible, period, is more important than arguing about politics. And I've always said that. We are in this contentious, polarizing political environment. And I get it. it, it and I've been tempted myself to enter into that fray. But I, I just, I don't do it. I refrain from commenting on arguing about politics. And if you ask me why, I'll tell you. It's not that I don't have a view. I have a view I'd like to share. It's not that I feel incompetent to express my views. I feel competent to do that. I simply understand where the real battle is. Look, if everyone held an accurately informed Christian worldview, the number and the degree of disputes we'd have over any issue that faces us in the country would be dramatically reduced. In other words, if people, two things, took the Bible as seriously as they take their political positions, we'd probably agree on almost everything. Here's what I mean. I think upstream of politics is the issue that I focus on. Is the Bible reliable, number one? And should we take it seriously, number two? Is the Bible reliably, number one? And should we take it seriously? And why do I stay in that, that, that area? Because I think you should as well. Because most of our unbelieving friends and family members view the Bible as little more than a collection of fables, a collection of moral stories. They think most of those moral stories are considerably outdated. I mean, few of us develop our view of the world from fictional fairy tales. So why would it surprise you that unbelievers don't want to use the Bible as a reliable source for their worldview? But it turns out the story of the Bible is not a fictional story. It's rooted in true events. 
Those true events occurred in history. And the Bible we have today, I have, my whole work has been spent here demonstrating that it is a reliable historical document. That's why I wrote this book called Cold Case Christianity. That's why Frank and I continue to even do things like this. If the events recorded in the Gospels are true, then we got a problem because Jesus rose from the grave. And if that happened, then Jesus is more than just some wise ancient sage. He is credible. He is God. We should probably listen to what he has to say. And we, we're, we're, we're probably safe in forming our worldview around his words as opposed to anyone else's. If the New Testament is seriously reliable, and it is, I think we have an excellent point of reference around which we can form everything we believe, including our moral and social views. Also, the Bible is seriously consistent. Even if we could persuade everyone that the resurrection was true, right, and the New Testament is reliable, well, I think we still have a hard time coming to agreement. Why? Because not everyone will take the time to read and understand what the Bible teaches. It's one thing to take your Bible to church. It's another thing to take your Bible seriously. In my experience, most of the disagreements I'm seeing right now, they're occurring when someone is misreading or fails to read the biblical text. And I talk a lot about that in a book I wrote called Forensic Faith. It's just not unusual for believing Christians to cherry pick passages to fit whatever their presupposition or personal preference is. Well, if you're doing that, you're not taking the Bible seriously. You are failing to see its consistency. The Bible reflects the mind of God, and God is not self-contradictory. So if you find yourself taking a position based on one verse without seeking the consistency in the entirety of scripture, you're probably misinterpreting the text. You're probably failing to take the Bible seriously. Last thing, the Bible is seriously prescriptive. I think a lot of Christians are more comfortable with the Bible's description of ancient events than they are with the Bible's prescription for holy living. Why? Because I think it's easier for us to tell our friends and family members that the historical Jesus existed, you know, than it is to tell them about God's moral will for their lives, for our lives. But the Bible is more than descriptive. It's prescriptive. It describes what is true about history and what ought to be true in the future, especially when it comes to our moral views, especially when it comes to our behaviors. If you're going to take the Bible seriously, you can't separate the moral teaching from its historical teaching. It's reliable on both fronts. Now, I know it's tempting to embrace the parts we like or the stuff we find convenient, and then we can just reject the parts we don't like or find uncomfortable, but that's not an option for us. That's not an option for those who are willing to take the Bible seriously. We are obligated to know what God says so we can form an accurate worldview that shapes our beliefs and it shapes our behaviors. Do you realize when I talk to young people, I constantly ask them, I say, look, I get it. We want to identify ourselves as Christ followers. But most of the time when I hear someone tell me they're a Christ follower, if I'm not careful and dig down a little bit deeper on that definition, what you find is that they are Christ admirers or Christ modifiers or Christ redactors. They want to change the words of the New Testament, change the focus of Jesus. We can't do that, especially when it comes to issues of social justice. When we come back from the break, I want to show you the difference between the social justice that, that the culture tells us about and the biblical justice that is described by Jesus of Nazareth. We'll do that right after the break. 
If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or cross-examine in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamined.org. Well, thanks for joining us back here at Cross Examine Radio. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Uh, usually it's Frank Turk you're listening to, and you are listening now instead to his partner. Uh, Frank's, a, I consider to be a, a brother. Uh, I mean, I'm not just a Christian brother, but I mean, but this guy and I have become close over the years. I am Jay Warner Wallace, happy to sit in and do what I can for Frank. Frank is one of those guys who will do anything he can for you. So I'm happy to try to return the favor on occasion. Here we go. Let's, we're talking about social justice, and we've kind of given you a starting point, I hope, laid the foundation. Now let's get right into it. I want to give you what I think is the difference between social justice and biblical justice, and hopefully I'll help you to think clearly about this. And I'm going to do it, and i give you a, an investigative template. Look, right, as a detective, my job is to answer the classic questions that are offered about any claim. What, how, when, where, why, who, these kinds of things are the classic questions we uh, investigate when we investigate any crime scene. What happened? How did it happen? When did it happen? Where did it happen? Who did this? These are the things that we look at. And we're going to do the same thing when it comes to the definitions of social justice and biblical justice. I want to give you the what, why, the who. Uh, I want to give you the, the, the where, the when, the, the how. So let's just jump right in. And you'll see the difference, I think, pretty clearly and pretty quickly. All right. When it comes to um, issues of, of justice, the first question I want to ask is, what is it we think is broken that needs to be corrected? And there are differences if you take it from a social justice view or from a biblical justice view. So, for example, under social justice view, classically, uh, a part of the fallenness of humans is addressed. It's almost always an emphasis on uh, wealth, on money. Remember, I talked about this all the time in my books, that there are only three reasons why anyone commits a crime, only three reasons why anyone commits a murder, commits any other sin. Those are always the same. They never change. They are classic. They are attached to our human nature. They are described in scripture, but I didn't discover them that way because I wasn't a Christian until I was 35. I discovered them working homicides. Here they are. Things that drive that misbehavior. One, financial greed. Two, sexual lust. Three, the pursuit of power. Now, it turns out that most social justice efforts from a cultural perspective are focused on the first issue, financial greed. It's that the accumulation of wealth seems to be behind every evil that occurs in culture. And that's why sometimes social justice warriors become interested in redistributing wealth, as if if we only respond to this one aspect of human fallenness, we can solve the problem. Remember, whatever your solution is, it's based on the first question, what's broken? What needs to be fixed? If the thing that's broken is the lack of, is the evil use of money, and then we can fix it a certain way, right? That's going to lead to a certain kind of solution. Under social justice, really, the emphasis is almost always on the idea that money, wealth, is somehow inherently evil. Of course, under biblical justice as a term, we are going to look at more robust view of the fallen nature of humans. It's not just that wealth can cause us to do evil things to other people. It's that also that sex and power are behind a lot of our bad choices 
and a lot of the ways that we victimize others, even a lot of the ways that we become entrenched in our own position in cultures, because we make bad choices in those three areas. Choices where we want to just enjoy and do our love our lives the way we want to live it. And we don't do the certain things that would ensure a certain kind of lifestyle. Believe me, I see this all the time in the part of the people that I take to jail. Not all the people I take to jail have been victimized into their position. A lot of them made free choices that put them where they are. And when they made bad choices, those bad choices were driven by the three things. By the way, it's in First John. The three things that drive all bad choices, money, sex, and power. Those are the things. And by the way, a biblical sense of justice will address all of those, whereas most cultural social social justice efforts only deal with one of them. So that's the first question. What is broken? Second question. Why does any of this matter? For most kind of cultural views of social justice, secular views of social justice, they're going to argue that humans deserve equal treatment. And should not be judged unfairly on the basis of innate characteristics they can't change, right? I mean, look, if I, I can't change my skin color, I can't change my uh, that I'm biologically male. I, I'm born in certain areas, and I can't. I have no control over those things, and therefore, you should not discriminate against me on the basis of the innate characteristics I have that I had no choice in, right? But here's my now. By the way, that is also true of biblical justice. On the biblical justice side, we also believe that humans deserve equal treatment and should not be judged unfairly on the base of innate characteristics they can't change. Let's go back to social justice for a second. How do we ground this? How do we say we should not be, we, we have this innate um, uh, um, uh, dignity that we should respect if we don't ground it in the image of God? In other words, if we're saying, we can make this claim, humans deserve equal treatment and should not be judged unfairly on the basis of innate characteristics they cannot control. But why do we take that view? Because we happen to like it personally? But if another culture doesn't take that view, how can we ever say, hey, you should stop doing that? You, we, we, from a social justice perspective, you would be limited to your own country's boundaries if the only way to ground it is that you ground it in the idea that, that your culture thinks this is the way it ought to be. It turns out the biblical justice view is grounded transcendently in the nature of a holy God. It's objectively true. Therefore, that truth transcends all cultures, any place in history, any place on the globe. Even though both of us have a similar view on why this ought to matter, it turns out from a biblical justice perspective, we can ground it in a way that helps us to work with other cultures. Whereas from a, a secular perspective, I don't know how you could say it's anything more than just our preference. Why would you say that this, this should matter to another country who has a completely different view of what, how to treat people who have um, innate characteristics they can't control? Look, we see in, in scripture, like in Micah 6, 8, here's what he says. He says, he has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Do you see how doing justice and loving kindness is directly connected to walking humbly with the objective source of justice and kindness? You take out the walking humbly part, then all justice and kindness is, is a matter of personal opinion. 
Galatians says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. Paul says this in Galatians 3.28. There's no male, no female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Well, why can we make this statement? Because we know we are designed in the image of God. That transcends all of us. It transcends our nationality, our status, slave or free, our sex, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says it this way in Romans 10. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord. Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. I don't know if you see this over and over again, the idea of biblical justice and the innate dignity of humans, regardless of race, regardless of social status, regardless of where they are on the, on the, on the, on the planet, is grounded in the existence and identity of God. You take out that part, all you have is, well, we like it better over here this way. And you can't ground it. So what is broken? Well, what's broken is the fallenness, the robust fallenness of humans. Why does this matter? Because we are all created in the image of God. Already, I think you have two more robust, more intellectually reasonable ways to answer the first two questions. Now, let's go to a third question. Who is responsible for fixing it? Who is responsible for fixing it? Well, from a kind of secular view of social justice, you can see that with the, 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 the bottom line, the, the money, the, the dollar stops with governments. Governments are responsible for fixing it. Governments are responsible for diagnosing the problem and then fixing it. Now, here's my question for you. A couple of things I think come up, come up when, when you ask this question. Number, number one, what would guide, what text then would guide governments to do this in a way that is fair? And also, if governments are in charge of this by simply creating the laws that, can, that, that kind of push us towards certain types of moral behaviors, how do you think you're ever going to get the true kind of heart change that makes us a better people? In other words, I can legislate ideas. This is why I'm not in favor of legislating Christian ideas. Because I know that all that does is that you might control some behavior so that outwardly it looks like people are behaving a certain way, but you haven't changed. You haven't called them. To, you haven't wooed them to this notion. Instead, you forced them to this notion. And then you got to figure out, well, who sets the standard? I think in the end, this just if, you, if it's all a matter of government's legislating behavior that all we're doing is causing actions that resemble justice. But if you want a just people who on the inside out have become just and understand the idea of justice and fairness, I don't know that laws will ever get that for you because they are outside in, not inside out. Biblical justice, on the other hand, says, well, who's responsible? Individuals are responsible, not governments. Why? Because it's better. Look at it this way. Every government is made up of individuals, but not every individual will be part of a government that respects what you think is good social justice. Do you see why this is so much more powerful if it's coming from individuals? That puts the power back in your hands to achieve what, what you think God has called us to achieve. Even if your government is not paying attention to the issue, if the, if, if the person responsible is an individual and not a government, you could actually address the issue. And also, then it's not, it, this is a change that's coming from the heart of individuals who have been persuaded that they ought to 
behave in a certain way. They ought to express a certain form of justice. You will see over and over again in the Old and New Testament both, that both scriptures are speaking not to governments when they discuss issues of social justice, but they are speaking to individuals. Zechariah says this in, in Zechariah 7, uh, 9, and 10. Thus the, says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, speaking to individuals. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you individuals dis- devise evil against another individual in your heart. And individuals have hearts, right? We are in relationship to one another. Clearly, all these calls for behavior that we might somehow categorize as social justice are biblical calls uh, directed at individuals, not imposed upon us by governments. See the same thing in the New Testament in James, where he says in chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Again, he's speaking to individuals who can who have the power to keep themselves unstained from the world. Over and over again, we can get a, we get a specific who when it comes to who ought to be caring about social justice. It is not governments that legislate us as individuals. It's individuals who empower this movement. That is the biblical notion of of justice as opposed to the secular notion of social justice. When we come back, we'll answer the two most important, three most important questions related to the distinction right after this break. Ladies and gentlemen, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. If you like what we do, would you please consider going to crossexamined.org and giving us a tax-deductible donation? 100% of your donations will go to ministry, 0% to buildings. Thanks so much. Okay, we are talking about the social justice and the difference between social justice and biblical justice right here on Cross Examine Radio. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Usually with Frank Turek, I am sitting in for him. I am Jay Warren Wallace. We've already talked about the six classic questions that every investigator asks and answers when they're investigating a crime scene. The what, why, the who question, the where, when the how question. We've answered three of those when it comes to social justice, the what, why, and who. Now I want to answer the last three before we round up today's show. Uh, Here's the next one. Where should this all occur? When it comes to secular notions of social justice, we typically say that it's going to occur at a national level. So if you drew concentric circles from where you stand right now geographically, and you drew those circles out from your family, then to your community, maybe your church, then to your state, then to your country, then to your planet, we would say that the biblical definition of justice is different from the secular definition of social justice because the uh, the where it occurs and, 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 and who it is that's enacting social justice is happening at the much grander level of governments. Whereas we would say from a biblical perspective that social justice, biblical justice begins at the local level of communities with individuals that you interact with that are on your street corners, that are in your communities. And that's why often as a church leader, we focused on those ministries that dealt with this issue locally. 
And why do we do that? Because there's still an important need to address um, geographic proximity. This is what's becoming missing in our, our interaction with each other in terms of relationships, because we're online sometimes. We call these things relationships, but we have no geographic, necessarily no geographic proximity to these people. It turns out to really enact the love of Christ, we have to start and be focused on the people who are sitting right next to us, our neighbors. Uh, and who is your neighbor? We can discuss that issue. But why would you not begin geographically at those people who are in your own uh Ten ring, right? Rather than you move out to the f further proximity. Let me give you the the when question. This is important. The question is when will all of this be corrected? When will justice eventually be enacted? Social justice movements that are secular attempt to uh, to to achieve social justice only in the here and now. It must it must occur in this lifetime. It, it must be achieved before everyone dies because there is no life after death from a secular perspective. And now, look, I, I think that we as Christians do not want to ignore the here and now. We just have a much more robust view of justice. Why? Because we know that if the Christian worldview is true, life is not a line segment that starts at birth and ends at death. It is a ray, if you know your geometry. It begins at birth. It extends through the thing we call death, that little point, And then it continues off indefinitely in the same trajectory. That's what a ray is. A ray is, starts at a point, goes through a point, and continues indefinitely. Now, if that is the truth about what our lives are as human beings— then social justice or biblical justice, the way we would see it, is connected to eternity, to the kingdom of heaven. We are not limited simply by what happens in this lifetime. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 56, 1, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteous, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Matthew says it, uh, or Jesus said it actually in Matthew 11, verse 28, come to me, all who labor are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Do you realize that the real justice, the real satisfaction of all that uh, needs to be corrected, the real rest occurs not in your work on planet Earth, but in the work that God has already done for you and will do. Because it says in Psalm 72, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him uh, who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. In essence, God is the redeemer. God is the one who will correct. You see this, Paul says in Romans 12, right? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. When's he going to do that? Doesn't seem like he ever does that in my life. I don't see this, this why we have to even worry about social justice. If God's going to take care of it, why hasn't he taken care of it? Because he's working with a much longer timeline than what we can see in our temporal lives. Psalmist says in Psalm 37, turn away from evil and do good. So, so shall, uh, shall you dwell forever. Forever? Yes, forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell on it forever. This is a notion that we have to keep in mind, that we are not simply uh, trying to seek justice, and we are limited to what we can do in the 90 years of our lives here on planet Earth that there is a longer timeline involving justice. Are we to live out, to live justly? Yes, of course we are. 
I'm not saying it's an either or, but we as Christians with the notion of biblical, ju- biblical justice, I also have to in- incorporate and understand that eternity waits for us. Last thing, and here probably is the biggest distinction. How do we accomplish social justice? Well, I think from most secular views of social justice, sadly, it's about securing equal outcomes. Equal outcomes. That is not a biblical view. Biblical justice secures equal opportunities. Equal opportunities. So when we say from a social justice perspective that these equal outcomes, they become identified as the rights of individuals, we would say from a biblical perspective, well, actually, no, equal opportunities are a right for individuals. But let's face it, not everyone, um, even if you have the exact same opportunity, will maximize it and achieve the same result. Some people will, some people won't. This is just the nature of living on planet Earth, right? Uh, Even in heaven, it says there are not equal. There's a greater reward, Jesus says, about your life in eternity. There's a greater reward or a lesser reward. Well, why? Because you are what we want to seek as Christians is to make sure that everyone has an equal opportunity and that their innate characteristics, the things they can't change, should never limit the opportunities we have That's what it is to be just, is to give us equal opportunities. But some people will not seek those, will not chase those opportunities equally. They will not achieve equal outcomes. But that is not something we can address. We have to allow that kind of freedom. And that means that some people are going to choose freely to do things that are not good. And we have to understand that part of justice is in punishing those who freely chose, not because of, of, uh, of um, uh, an unequal opportunity, they even had a chance to do the right thing, but they chose to do wrong. They chose a different outcome. Well, part of justice is in seeking a different outcome for those that says when justice is done in Proverbs 21, 15, when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Yes, some people who do evil, the form of social justice that we are going to be seeking for them is that they are judged and are punished. Ecclesiastes 3, it's said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every word. The Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 24 says, whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations, but those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. So in the end, some people are going to suffer because they make bad choices, evil choices. I'm going to give you a quick story, not to say that everyone falls in this category, but we spent a lot of time working with the homeless in Los Angeles when I was a church leader. And we would go downtown to places, well, a church called Set Free Skid Row. And as we would walk with our students trying to reach people with the gospel on the streets of Los Angeles on Skid Row, I had more than one person say, move along. Don't be, I'm going to be, we're shooting heroin here. And if you don't want your kids to see this, move along. We don't come to your house. We don't come to your home to be, you know, looking at you guys. So don't, this is, this is where we live. This is our home. Just move along. Let us do our thing. I can't tell you the number of times that was said to me. And in other words, for them, they did not consider themselves homeless. And the city had allowed them to, to build their shelter on that street for years. That was their home. They had decided that they were going to live there and spend their money not on rent or on on a mortgage. They had income, monthly income they would actually get from social services. They wanted to spend it on heroin. 
They were happy to have us feed them and clothe them because then they'd have to spend their money on food or clothing. They were allowed to spend all of it on their drug of choice. Look, there are people who are going to choose to do the wrong thing. We have to allow them to choose that freely because we can't guarantee equal outcomes. Now, look, before I close this show with you today, let me just say something about the nature of Christianity. Christianity by its nature is dangerous because it's dangerous in the sense that it allows us to make choices. But in the end, our choices are genuine. If you're going to allow someone to freely choose to love God, that that's what God's goal is, to create a world in which you can love him genuinely. You have to create a world in which you could also hate him genuinely so that when you do choose to love him, your love is meaningful. It requires this thing, dangerous thing called free agency. That means that whatever governmental system we put in place that seeks to take advantage of a biblical notion of justice has to allow the same danger, the option, the ability to Freely choose things, given equal opportunities, but knowing that it won't result in equal outcome. That sometimes will not happen that way because some people will make bad choices intentionally, and we have to allow that to happen. So I think any notion of social justice has to keep the dangerous reality of of freedom Uh, And I think that's what we want. We want that dangerous reality, but it does mean that we have to allow people to make bad choices. And some people will make bad choices. Look, in the end, that is the difference between a secular cultural view of, 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 of justice that we call social justice and a biblical view of justice as it's described on the pages of Scripture. We have to help our kids understand this difference because this difference will guide us. And then when someone asks the question, well, does that church over there, is it, is it really seeking, as I said here, to, to serve through ministries of compassion and social justice? Well, now you have a definition in place to answer that question. Hope that helps you here. And I hope you'll join us again next week when Frank returns to host the cross Examine Radio Show. Until then... Have a great week. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.